Numbers chapter 32, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dabon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sebam, Nebo, and beyond. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, none except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. Then they came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. Let's pray. Dear Lord and our God, blessed be your name and blessed be your holy and precious word. What more, Lord, can we ask right now than just to please, Lord, have your way with our hearts and our minds. Open us, Lord, to receive your truth and your will for each one of us sitting here today and hearing a bond. We pray, Lord, that you would please be with the pastor empower his words, empower his speech. Let every syllable be blessed by the Holy Spirit to speak truth into the hearts of all who hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Robert, for reading that passage. Lots of interesting names there for us to consider and a very interesting episode. And I'd like to begin our consideration of this by asking those of you who love meat, those of you who are steak lovers, would you be willing to give up eating all meat in order to befriend someone who's a vegetarian? You know, the New Testament raises that kind of a question. I'll be quoting from that later. Of course, I could ask those who are vegans or vegetarians, would you be willing to 
eat meat in order to reach out to a neighbor who just loved meat? How far are we willing to go? What cost are we willing to pay to come alongside someone and be an encourager to them and to the work that God is doing in their hearts? The theme today I'd like to have us think about is encouragement. The last thing I think we need as God's people, really, the last thing anyone needs is discouragers. And the last thing we need on our journey through life as we're following Christ is people to discourage us. So I'd like to look at this text in Numbers chapter 32 and look at becoming encouragers in three phases. First of all, the obstacle to becoming an encourager, then a vision for becoming an encourager, and then the foundation for being an encourager. The first is really summed up in two words. What's the obstacle to becoming an encourager? In this text, it's easy. It's me and mine. Me and mine. It's people who say, me and mine is all that matters. It's easy to see that the zeal for the fight is lost when we get what we want and when those that we care about, those that we love, get what they want, when they're safe and happy. It's easy to then forget about those who are still trudging along on the path. I'm sure you've seen this scene. You know, maybe you're on a beach, it's a hot day, and there's a booth there selling ice cream. There's a crowd around that booth. And you see this dad, he's left his crying, tired kids behind, and he's trying to muscle his way to the front of the line as politely as he possibly can. He's waving his hands, he's speaking out, trying to get the attention of the server. And finally, he gets the order placed, he gets his ice cream. He goes out and he says, you know what, I really don't care about the rest of the crowd. All I care about is finding a shady spot to sit down with my kids and enjoy this ice cream. I think we can feel that. And that's what these two tribes felt, Reuben and Gad. And then later on, the tribe of Manasseh joined them. It's mentioned later in this same chapter. It's been a long ride. They've been wandering, at least the people of Israel as a whole, for 40 years. And now, Once again, they're right on the boundary of the promised land. They haven't yet crossed the Jordan River westward into the promised land, so they're still on the eastern side, but the land is good. You know, it's flat and it's green. It's perfect pasture land for all the sheep that these two tribes have. This seems to be their specialty. seems to be what their wealth was and also their gift was. And so they said, this is where we need to be. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation where you've spent a lot of time looking for a home, maybe an apartment or the perfect house, and you look and you look and then you see it. You walk in and it's got everything. All the conditions you had are met there. And what do you do? You don't look anymore. You don't want any more ads. You don't want any more real estate agents. You say, we're home. This is it. I'm done looking. That's exactly how Reuben and Gad felt. We're home. Everything is all set. Now, I want you to notice something. This is important. There was nothing sinful about that choice. They weren't in some way making a morally wrong choice here. If you read about this passage, you'll see that people debate that point. I would just say that as you read the words of Moses, he's not rebuking them for choosing this land, which was on the eastern side of the Jordan, not 
within the sort of the traditional boundaries of the promised land. So this is a, you might say, an innocent choice in and of itself. This desire of theirs is okay. So what's the problem? Well, let's look at this text. Verse 5, Reuben and Gad come, and they said, If we have found favor in your sight, Moses, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Don't take us over the Jordan. So what they are saying is, we're done. We don't want to cross the Jordan. We don't want to fight anymore because we've found a home for our families and for our flock. What matters, and of course this makes sense, what matters to us is our loved ones. I mean, we have this obligation to take care of our families. What matters to us is our economic well-being, and for us that means the flock, the sheep. This makes perfectly good sense to all of us. It's how the whole world thinks. So what's wrong with it? But here's the question. What effect would Reuben and Gad's decision have on the whole of the people of Israel? That's the question they aren't asking themselves. Did it even matter to them? And that was the question that Moses raises for them. That's fine for you. The decision you make is your decision. But, verse 6, But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? So this is the first obstacle to being an encourager. It's being concerned with me and mine. So that raises the second point. To have a vision to be an encourager, you have to realize the influence of your words and deeds on others. You have to see, you have to have a vision for everything you do affecting others, either encouraging them or discouraging them in the walk that God has laid before them. So as we continue in verse 8 and on, you see that Moses just sort of lets loose on them. It's a tirade. He's really angry with them. Verse 7 I read, verse 8 continues, This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Why is he so angry? Well, because he's seen the awful, destructive power of discouragement. So verse 7, now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over? That's what he sees. There's something pernicious about what you're doing. You think it's innocent, and there is an innocence in your choice, but you're not seeing, you're not aware of the influence it has on everyone around you. If these two tribes, Reuben and Gad, decide not to go forward, what will happen? Well, of course, there won't be the numbers for battle. But I think it's more than that. As you read the words of Moses, you see that that's not the heart of it. It's a break in friendship and loyalty. They've been walking together for decades now across the wilderness. They're one people, going in one direction, serving their one God. And now those who have walked side by side are splitting up. And so the other tribes are going to look at Reuben and Gad and say, Brothers, I thought we were in this together. And Reuben and Gad look at them and they say, You know what? My wife and I really love this right here. So you go on without us. We're just going to stay here. It's going to discourage everybody. Moses knows the danger of discouragement. As he says here in verse 8 and on, it happened 40 years earlier. You probably remember the story. They had come to this same boundary of the promised land, not exactly the same spot, but Moses had sent out 12 spies, 
check out the land. And the spies came back. Ten of them had a discouraging report. Two of them had an encouraging report. The two were Caleb and Joshua. But ten of them said, oh man, the land is full of giants. They're going to kill us. And then they're going to kill our wives. And then they're going to kill our children. And the people were quaking with fear. And they said, we're not going there. It discouraged them from trusting God and his promise and moving forward. Not again. That's what Moses is saying. I don't want the courage drained away from my people again as it happened 40 years ago. It's a small thing, Reuben. It's a small thing, Gad. But it has a profound influence. Discouragement. Not again. So our words, that's what I gather from this, our choices, our actions can either encourage people. You know, the end means to put courage into. What you do can put courage into people to walk where God wants them to, or it can discourage, it can drain courage out of them. And, of course, the question is, what effect does my life have? What effect am I having or you having on others around you? Words, Moses says, can drain courage out of people. That's what happened 40 years ago. The land is full of giants. Run, get away from here. And our actions can. That's what's happening now. Simple words. We're not going with you. We're happy where we are. Those I love are happy. I'm happy. Me and mine are happy. That's all that matters to me. Discouraging words. Really what they're saying is we don't care about you. I care about me. I care about those that I love. Of course, they're my family. They're my tribe. But we don't care. You go and do what's best for you. Discouraging. Innocent request, but they don't see the influence it has Whether consciously or unconsciously, we are always encouragers or discouragers. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this in the context of this COVID crisis for myself, how my words and my actions affect other people in my response to what's happening. And I was thinking about it in particular in terms of some passages in the New Testament along with this passage that I was studying. Reuben and Gad on the one hand, and then A chapter you can read, Romans 14. Another chapter, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 in the New Testament. And those New Testament passages say something interesting. He says, you're Christians. You have liberty. There's many things that you can do and still honor the Lord and enjoy all the gifts that he has. You can eat what you want. You can go where you want. You can drink what you want. You can dress the way you want. You can enjoy creation the way you want. You can be entertained in the way you want. There's many, many liberties that we have, just like Reuben and Gad had a choice about where to settle. It's not wrong. You can choose whatever you want. But those passages in the New Testament say, don't let your choices end up discouraging someone else from following the Lord Jesus. Don't be a discourager. Your words, your actions matter. So I was asking myself, how do I apply that to myself now? I want to preface this by saying, you don't have to follow my example. I'm using this as an illustration. For example, how do I apply that to the issue of wearing a mask? I'll be honest with you, I'm not comfortable wearing a mask. It's hot, especially on these hot days. It's crazy. In fact, I've noticed something like right before the service, I sometimes take a lozenge, you know, just to lubricate my throat. I noticed that if I put my mask on, 
some of that eucalyptus smell goes out the top and into my eyes, and my eyes start to water. Everything's wrong with masks. So I, I'm not comfortable wearing them. So I could say, like Reuben, like Gad, you know, I'm healthy, I'm safe, my family's healthy, my family's safe, everyone I love and I care about is happy, so I'm all set. But then I ask myself, what if, what if not wearing a mask makes others think that I don't care about their health? And what if not wearing a mask discourages some from coming to church because they don't feel safe? What then? Well, these passages in the New Testament has Paul saying this statement. He says, if eating meat harms my brother spiritually, then I won't eat meat ever, he says. So I, I know he's talking about a particular thing, but in my life I apply it as a principle. If not wearing a mask makes my brother or sister feel unloved, if not wearing a mask makes my brother or sister reluctant to come to worship, then I'll wear a mask all the days of my life because that's what matters. Now, I'm not talking about masks here, and I'm not trying to tell you whether or not you need to wear a mask when you're going about your life. I'm telling you an illustration of how to apply what we're learning from Reuben and Gad and how I've applied it to my life. Analyze, that's what I'm saying, analyze every decision you make. Analyze everything you do in these same terms that your actions and your words will have a profound influence on other people. And ask yourself, am I encouraging them to follow the Lord or am I draining courage out of them? Now this story has a very nice ending, a very good ending. In verses 16 and 17 we see that Reuben and Gad listened to the rebuke of Moses Verse 16, then they came near to him and said, we will build our sheepfolds for our livestock and our cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place. You see what they're saying? Not only will we go, but we're going to go before them. We're going to lead the way. Your words have had an impact. We want to be encouragers. I'm sorry we even had this thought without thinking about how it might discourage other people. We're going to take a lead as our brothers and our sisters march across the Jordan. So, yeah, me and mine is what is an obstacle to being an encourager. Having a vision for our words and deeds as an instrument of encouragement is the first way that we are, become encouragers. And then here's the third point. The foundation for being encouragers is the nature and work of our triune God. It's the nature and work of our triune God. The meaning in the New Testament of this word encouragement is interesting. If I look at the root word, it has a fairly wide range of meanings. Let me give you a list. It can mean exhort, exhort, challenge, urge, rebuke, beg, Comfort, encourage, strengthen, cheer up, come alongside, build up. It's translated with all those words. It's almost like there's this range, which on the one hand has the picture of a coach standing on the sidelines yelling at his players, you know. On the other hand, it's a mother with a little one comforting and encouraging her child. Encourage. 
The goal in that whole range is to put courage to do what God has called someone to do. Our role is to put that courage into them. And here's what's fascinating about that word. That root word is used to describe our triune God. Now, I'm going to give you a few scriptures here. I'm sorry we don't have them up on the screen this week, but you can jot them down and look at them, and I'm giving you just a sampling. But look at God the Father. It's his title in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he's called the God of encouragement. And then again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, he's the God of all comforts. The same root word, the God of all comforts. His work is to encourage us. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, it says that God has given us his promises and verified his promises. Why? So that we would have strong encouragement to walk in the way. Strong encouragement. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6, he says he comforts the downcast. Same word. He puts courage into those whose hearts are breaking. And then our Lord Jesus Christ is a comforter. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, it doesn't use that word in this particular text, although it does in so many others, but look at what he does. Here, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah, and he says, A bruised reed he won't break, and a smoking wick he won't quench. See, God, our Lord Jesus, rather, heals the broken, and then he blows on those lives which are like dying embers until they flame up with courage. It's his ministry. In Acts chapter 23, St. Paul has been tried. It's a sort of a crazy trial. The people who are trying him are screaming at each other, and now they're going to tear him limb from limb, and he's taken into custody. And while he's in custody, it says, the Lord Jesus stood by his side and said, you know what he said? Take courage. It's the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are just a sample. Father, Son, and of course the Holy Spirit. It's the title of the Holy Spirit. You read John's Gospel, chapter 14, 15, 16. He's called the Comforter. He's called the Helper, the same root word. He's called, in other words, the Encourager. So the point is very simple. When we encourage others, when you encourage others, we're really working alongside our triune God. We're doing His holy work. And you see it illustrated all through the Scriptures be an interesting study for you to do. In particular, you can see it illustrated in the life of Paul. I can't give you all of the places in his epistles where he talks about encouragement, or even in the book of Acts, but let me give you two. In Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, Paul has barely escaped with his life because they wanted to kill him. And he returns to the believer, and you know what he does? It says, He strengthened them and encouraging them, that was his ministry and his speech, his preaching, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Putting courage into them. A man who's just been beaten up stands in front of them, puts courage into them. And then a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in the Philippian jail You might remember the story. There's an earthquake. God miraculously frees him. You think he might run now. I'm free. Let's get out of this place. But no. You know what he first does? The immediate thing that says he went to the worshipers who customarily met down by the river and he encouraged them and then departed. 
His ministry was one of encouraging. I want to say this, as you read what he did in the synagogues and the churches as he went back and forth, his ministry was not just that of teaching them the meaning of a text of Scripture, you know, giving them a little lesson in theology. It wasn't that, but over and over he wanted to touch the hearts of believers with God's truth and God's promises so that they'd be encouraged to continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to put courage into their hearts. So this is the God we serve. And our triune God won't allow us, won't allow us to be a me and mine kind of people. It's not possible. He will war with us. His Holy Spirit will continually discipline us because God's own nature is to be an encourager and his nature is in us. And friends, I'll tell you, this makes us different from the whole world. It gives us a whole different world view. Several decades ago, there was this brilliant book called The Selfish Gene published. I don't know if any of you have read it. I've mentioned it before. It's really a book about what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? The author, Richard Dawkins, says, listen to this, that you and I, we are machines constructed by our genes, our genetic material, in order to allow the genes to propagate themselves. You know, your car is just a means for you to get from A to B, while you, everything that you are, is just a machine that the genes are using to propagate themselves. And the truth is, as he points out, our genes really don't care about any other genes. In fact, they compete with every other gene because our genes, my genes, don't care about your genes, My genes just want to propagate themselves. They don't care at whose expense. They want to make as many copies of themselves as they possibly can. That's a me and mine kind of view of who we are as human beings. It's saying that by our very nature, we're me and mine kinds of creatures. All I care about is, well, my gene, but then, of course, my loved ones, because they share my genetic material. And maybe my tribe, because it shares a little bit more of my genetic material. Me and mine is all I care about, just like Reuben and Gad. I like these green fields, Moses. They're beautiful, perfect for our sheep. And you know, my wife loves it. She's already got the house all planned. And my kids, look at them, running around with the dogs in these fields. This is it. This is where we're going to stay. Nothing else matters. And friends... Sad truth is, many in the world live like that. In fact, we see it in ourselves. Don't you see the impulse of that right now? Even as we're talking about encouragement, isn't there a little voice inside that's saying, yeah, you know, I wish somebody would encourage me. I wish somebody would cheer me up. I wish someone would stand alongside me because, man, am I tired. I wish someone would say a positive word to me. Just those thoughts of me and mine just flood in. It's our nature. It's our nature. But it's not our supernature. It's not what the triune God who dwells in us is doing. The Spirit of God is battling that nature because there's something new happening in us. It's a new life. It's a new life in Christ. In particular, it's the cross, the cross of Jesus that demolishes that lie that me and mine is all that matters. That that's what we are as human beings. That that's the only thing that we should care about. So, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it points to the example of Jesus. 
says explicitly, don't look anymore to your own interests. And your own interests are, of course, your own body, your own well-being, the well-being of your marriage, of your family. That's what your own interests are. It's the me and mine. But have, it says, the attitude of Christ. And what did he do? Well, he didn't grasp at it. He didn't try to keep that perfect glory he had in the Trinity from all eternity past. It says in Philippians 2, he gave that up in order to serve our interests, in order to bring us life. Look, it says, to the interests of others. Don't be Reuben, don't be Gad. How can my words and actions, ask yourself, how can my words and actions, costly though they may be, encourage others as they pursue Christ and follow him? A private decision, you see. It has to do with my wife and I, it has to do with our kids, it has to do with where we live. And those are private decisions. There's no doubt about it. But what they didn't realize is that every decision we make has an influence on others. The natural way is to not think about that. But God's way is to think about being encouragers. So as I close, think about a vision for how our lives can be an encouragement to others, or how, sadly, they might be a discouragement to others. And at this point, I could list everything that we do. My marriage. My marriage is not just about whether I'm happy and my wife is happy. My marriage, in fact, is, whether I like it or not, an encouragement to others. It shows something about loyal, committed love. It points them in some way, Scripture says, to the love of Christ himself. It shows them that it's worth being committed in a relationship. It encourages them to persevere in some way also. It encourages them to be servants and lovers in the name of Christ. My work. It's not about the bottom line. It's not about bringing home the paycheck. It's not about a business that makes sure that there's more profit than loss. It's how do my words and my actions affect my customers? How do they affect my employees? How does it affect those who work under me? How does it encourage those who are pursuing Christ? Or how does it encourage those who are walking after Christ? Everything I do has an influence on others. A great God of encouragement rules over us, and the spirit of encouragement dwells in every one of us because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's no longer about what's good for me, what's good for those I love, mine, But you know, God has made us a part of a people, his people. Everything I do affects them because we're in this together. So 1 Thessalonians, I'll close with this verse, chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Amen. Let's pray. Lord my God, our Savior, our King, thank you that you care about us perfect in glory and splendor, perfect in wisdom, and yet, Lord, you came to earth, humbled yourself, became a servant in order to give us life. And we pray, Lord, that the Spirit of Christ would dwell in us, that same spirit of comfort and encouragement towards others. Especially, Lord, during the hard times in our lives, especially when we wonder how we should go, give us a vision, Father, for how we can Spur one another up to love and good works. In the name of Jesus we pray it. Amen. Friends, we're in this together. I don't mean this crisis or the next crisis or the crisis after that. 
but I mean in this journey of life as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So my benediction is from Hebrews 3:13. As the God of encouragement rules over us, may he give you a vision for encouraging others day by day as long as it's called today. Amen.